Well, the property is really going to get a workout this week. Vacation Bible School is always one of those weeks where it is jam-packed with energy. If you're, if you're feeling low in energy or somehow discouraged or somehow burdened by life, pop over here sometime this week during the mornings and you will see all kinds of happy, excited, energetic children who are filling this place with all kinds of fun and excitement. And uh, it's just great. Well, we are continuing with the questions that you have asked. And this week, we have p picked a question that you asked, which is, um, you asked me to share the truth about staying married, particularly to an unbeliever. And then what about kids in this mixture of believer-unbeliever? I thought, though, that it would be a great moment, um, having followed the question on creation last week, I thought it would be a great moment for us to revisit the, the truth about marriage in general, about God's people in marriage, and to make sure we cover uh, both, all, both of those scenarios, scenarios, married to a believer and married to an unbeliever. But under the main heading of staying married, because that's really the hard truth that the scriptures portray. I, I want to um, introduce our, our time together by saying to you that I have sort of two goals this morning. One is to make sure that, that we understand that in a congregation like ours, there are many situations, many heartaches many stories that didn't work out or are not working out. And so I want to make sure that we understand that in our church, we are a church of grace and care and kindness and patience, I hope. And that we love people regardless of the situation they find themselves in or regardless of how life has turned out. We want to extend that kind of grace. And in presenting the truth, I, I don't want to um, bypass um, a call to be gracious, a call to be kind, and a call to care, and to know that our hearts break with those of you whose hearts have broken. And uh, to know that where we can help you with getting right with God or repenting or whatever, then we want to be part of, we want, we want to be that congregation. So know that, please. No matter what I say this morning, from this point forward, understand that that is an important goal. And the second goal is that I want to present the truth to you that, that there's a special empowerment that has been given to us as believers to live the truth of God's Word. Not because it's easy. That's why we're empowered. As believers in Jesus Christ, indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, the same God who raised Christ from the dead, has empowered us to be able to live lives that are unusual. Lives that, that require the very power of God to live. 
As we think about the, the landscape of, of our, our culture, I think most of us recognize that it, as we look at, at marriage, it's, it's kind of horrifying, really, the direction that we're going in. We look around us and, and we see marriage being redefined by our culture. But to be honest, I have to say to us as Christians, I believe our culture is redefining marriage because they are underwhelmed by our example. Over the years, over the decades, God's people have failed to live out the truth, to demonstrate that the power of God gives us the ability to execute the truth of God against all odds, against all attacks, against all discomfort. So we really need to repent, first of all, as God's people to our culture. We have failed them. We have failed to show them the model. And so they're busy redefining marriage. And we're busy joining them in the redefinition. Our numbers are no better statistically than people who don't know Jesus. Next week we're going to talk about gender confusion and same-sex marriage. The numbers in the church in terms of approving and accepting are no different than the numbers outside of the church. We're following a different stream. We've joined a different culture. We've said goodbye to the empowerment of the Holy Spirit and decided to join the team that doesn't have the power of God. So I'm going to tell you the truth this morning, that being a Christian, invaded by the Holy Spirit, enables us to be the image of God, the image of God that we were designed to be, and that changes everything about us. We don't look like the culture around us, we look like Christ. As one writer nicely framed it, the Christian family, the Christian marriages are a movie trailer for the eternal feature spectacle yet to come. We are engaged to be married to God in, in a few moments, we're going to be celebrating a covenant-keeping God who has invited us into matrimony called salvation and calls us in Christian marriages to call attention to that salvation by our marriages. This is not a, a, Phil, a, a Dr. Phil show where we're going to talk about nice, wouldn't it be nice if we could stay together? 
strategies on how to stay together. I'm not going to give you any strategies to stay together. We don't need strategies to stay together. We're called to stay together by the power of God on the basis of our salvation, on the basis of our covenant-keeping God. We keep our covenant because we can. It's a hard truth. We are engaged to be married to God and our sexuality is a taste test of eternity. But we'll talk about, more about that next week. You'll want to come back. As soon as I mention sex, you're coming back. <laughs> Would you open your Bibles, please, to 1 Corinthians 7? Let's pray. Our Father, our covenant-keeping God, Jesus Christ, the groom, the church, the bride, the promises you have made to us, you have created us to keep to you and to model by that same power in our marriages. And so, O oh God, I call upon the very power of God to visit us today as the Holy Spirit who indwells us, fashions us, empowers us, enables us, makes us predisposed to receive the truth and live it. So, O oh God, I pray this morning and invite you to bring repentance to our hearts and a change of thinking by the power of your word, for Jesus' sake. Amen. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 10. To the married, I give this command... That, that's an important word. Command's a really important word, isn't it, in the Bible? Not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. Punctuation mark, period. That's what Paul has to say about marriage. Believer to believer. To the rest, who are the rest? We're going to find out. I say this, not I, not the Lord. In other words, Jesus hasn't said anything about this. But the Holy Spirit has. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. What does that mean? Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. What does that mean? We're going to talk about it. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. 
How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Nevertheless, listen to this, each one should retain the place in life that the Lord assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is the rule I lay down in some of the churches. Was your, does your version say all? All of the churches. In verse 8, 19 at the end, keeping God's commands is what counts. Each one should remain in the situation which he was in when God called him. Okay. What's the context? Back in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, the context was unbounded immorality. Rampant sexual immorality. Paul is talking to Christians and saying, are you serious? Give your heads a shake. Your bodies are the temple of the living God. You've been called to honor the Lord with your bodies. That's another sermon. And then, so many in Corinth decided, well, in light of all this immorality and everything and, and the fact that some of us are married to unbelievers, maybe we should live a celibate life. No sex. Maybe that would honor God. Paul says in the first number of verses in chapter 7, no, that doesn't honor God. Because if you're married, you don't own your body. Your spouse does. God shares your body with your spouse. It's the only... The only, only body that God shares your body with is your spouse. No, the context, so the context is not unbounded immorality and not celibacy, if you're married, but rather an imag, imago dea matrimony, an image of God marriage. That's what Paul is talking about here now. I'm going to talk to you about a radical new realization for some of you, but this is what the Holy Spirit has empowered you to do and is calling you to do, is commanding you to do. The overriding principle command is this. Each one should retain the place in life, verse 17, that the Lord has assigned him and to which God has called him. Those are some really interesting words. Do we understand that we've been assigned a spouse? If you are married, you've been assigned a spouse. It's an assignment. And they are an assignment. And you are an assignment. You are even a bigger assignment than your spouse is. And it's supposed to be that way. We are, a, we are an assignment that God is working on with each other. It, that's, we, he made dif two different genders on purpose. The person you're married to is completely bizarre <laughs> because they are a different gender. When you're married to the same gender, it's like you get each other. It's, 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 we'll talk about that next week, but... You don't want to be in a marriage where you get each other. Otherwise, one of you is redundant. You're in this thing to be changed by the Holy Spirit, and your partner is the big change agent that God uses. 
Why in the world would she think like that? The operative word is she. Now I could flip it around as she would say, what in the world is he thinking? And the operative thing is he, he wasn't thinking. So you're an assignment and you're on assignment. And you not only are assigned, but you've been called. This is a calling. Your marriage is a calling. You've been called to a mission. A mission to call attention to the glory of God. This is a holy, awesome responsibility. An amazing calling that you have. So the overriding principle then is no initiation of change in marital status. No matter what. No initiation of change in marital status no matter what. If I'm bothering you, just look at the little guy up on the screen. <laughs> if what I'm saying is getting to you, just look at him. Make faces at him. Don't make faces at me. So therefore, I ask the question this morning, does your marriage declare the glory of God? Because that's your assignment and that's your calling. Now, um, you need to get rid of a couple of words from at least one for sure, the word autonomy. Once you got married, you're in assignment, you're in a calling, and you're not autonomous. And Paul makes it abundantly clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you have been bought with a price. You are owned. Sovereignty, ownership, the Lord's table commemorates the cost of all of that. You were bought with a price, an incredible price. Your marriage was purchased at an incredible price. That God would marry people of which our marriages are an illustration, was a tremendous cost. Our groom paid. Therefore, point one, from verses 10 and 11, believers must stay married because they have been empowered to bear the image of a covenant-keeping God. And staying married illustrates covenant-keeping. That's how a covenant works. You keep it. Um, you'll notice that Paul says in this text, verse 10, 10, to the married I give this command. And then he says, not I, but the Lord. He wants, the writers in, he wants the readers in Corinth to realize, I'm telling you what Jesus told us. I'm not making this stuff up. Well, what did Jesus have to say about this? Would you turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10, please? The Pharisees one day approached Jesus. And by the way, they were representing an adulterous generation, as Jesus called them. Matthew, chapter 12, verse 39. 
Don't lose sight of that. Jesus defined the generation he lived in as an adulterous generation. I wonder what he, how he would define our generation. What do you think? Do you think he would call us an adulterous generation? How many think yes? I think you're right. So the Pharisees, representing an adulterous generation, were refereeing a culture of no-fault divorcees. And they came to Jesus and decided to test him. Now, in combination of Matthew 19 and Mark 10, but we're going to look at Mark 10. Verse 2, some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? In In the Matthew version, it says, for any reason. In other words, no fault divorces. And Jesus says this, what did Moses command you? Now, have you got in your mind an answer to that question? What did Moses command? Well, the Pharisees said Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. But that's not the question that Jesus asked. He didn't ask, what did Moses permit? He asked, what did Moses command? They did not want to answer the question because it's an inconvenient question, an inconvenient answer. What did Moses command? Well, so they answered what Moses permitted, and what Moses permitted in Deuteronomy chapter 24 is a certificate of divorce. And so Jesus says, well, yeah, it was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote this law of permission. And then Jesus says, but this is the command that I wanted you to notice for this reason. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and a mother and be united to his wife, and the two will no longer, the two are, the two will become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one. That's the command of Moses. See, Moses wrote Genesis, didn't he? Did you know that? Jesus knew that. So when he asked what was the command of Moses, the Pharisees were supposed to say Genesis 2.24. They didn't like Genesis 2.24 because it wasn't convenient in an adulterous generation to be told of of the marriage design of God. Moses was given permission by God because of the hardness of people's hearts to manage their sin. Deuteronomy 24. But Jesus states here, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, And the two will become one flesh, period. Now, 
Now, the Pharisees took off, it would appear, because in verse 10, we find that Jesus is now with his disciples. And when they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this, and he answered. So they wanted, they wanted more clarification. And Jesus stated this, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. So Jesus answered the question about divorce this way. No. No. Because when you get married, you are one flesh, not two. And because God has put marriage together. Therefore, what God has joined together, it is God work. He's the one who assigned your spouse to you. He's the one who called you to the mission. And because it is wrong for a human to undo God work. Let man not separate. God's will for his original design overrules his concession for managing sin of hard-heartedness. You see, the, the uh, Pharisees were trying to uh, eliminate the sin of adultery by granting divorces. I, I've been doing marriage work for a long, long time. For the most part, not always. But for the most part, when someone tells me they want out of their marriage, they're leaving their marriage, it's because they have someone else in mind. Many of you perhaps have been crushed by that in this very room that someone walked away from you because they had someone else in mind. And divorce is somehow a way to make adultery legal. That's what the Pharisees wanted to do. And Jesus will have none of it. He closed the loophole by saying, if you divorce your spouse and go to someone else, you're committing adultery. I'm not, I'm not accepting the fact that, that you, you can make divorce a lawful, adulterous relationship. And so he closed the loophole. Believers must stay married. So the truth is this. If believers become unmarried from each other, they are to remain unmarried or be reconciled to their estranged mate. Isn't that what it says in verse 10 and 11? A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. If believers become unmarried from each other, this is the truth, they are to remain unmarried or be reconciled to their estranged mate. Without exception... Yes. At least that's what Jesus taught. 
And then Paul goes on to talk about an exception. Here it is. To the rest, I say this, and we've read it. And the summary of this section is this. A believer must stay married to an unbelieving spouse if the unbelieving spouse wishes to remain married. You're going to see the the consistency here is, is stay married, stay married, stay married. Even to an unbelieving spouse, yes. The people of Corinth, and, and many even in this room, perhaps became a believer after you were already married. And your spouse may not be a believer. What am I supposed to do? Separate from them? Divorce from them? That's what these people were asking. Should we be celibate? We're going to talk about that in a moment. What about our children? Children in this mixed relationship of believer-unbeliever, what's their status before God? All these questions are answered right here. But the overriding statement is a believer must stay married to an unbelieving spouse if the unbelieving spouse wishes to remain married. So then, is God now teaching... That marrying an unbeliever is sanctioned by the Lord? No. From the front of the Bible to the end of the Bible, over and over again, we are urged not to marry an unbeliever because the unbelieving spouse will steal your heart away from God. In fact, in verse 39, after someone becomes widowed or is a widower, they may remarry. See, a woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. So the, this, the principle here is restated that Marriage is for life, but if your spouse dies, you're free to remarry, but you must marry, if you're a believer, a believer. Okay? So, no, this does not mean marrying an unbeliever is sanctioned by the Lord. It means that sometimes it happens that you're married to an unbeliever. What are you going to do? Stay married if they want to stay married. Well, doesn't the unbelieving spouse defile the believing spouse? Because we've just read before that, that uh, our body is the temple of the living God, and if I have a sexual relationship with an unclean person who isn't part of the family of God, am I not defiling the temple of God? Paul says no. Verse 14, For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, In other words, set apart in this special circumstance because the unbeliever is honoring the command of God to stay married. This is why why Christians alone are not... uh, God's rules and commands for marriage don't apply to Christians alone. They apply to the whole world. Marriage is God's design for all human beings, whether they're part of his family or not. Uh, By the way... 
Singleness is a whole other story, and half of the people in our world are single, and I don't want to come across like marriage is the only design or the only calling for God, because it isn't. We recognize that singleness, I, I don't have time to talk about, to you about every subject that there ever was in one sermon, but know this, that singleness is also a calling for some, a very important and high calling Paul goes on to talk about how much Jesus was single. Paul was single. They had a lot of time to give to the Lord. Singleness is very much and, and very, very much downplayed in our teaching, sadly. But singleness is, in fact, a whole big subject uh, that brings great pleasure to God, if that's your calling. The point here, though, is if you are in a marriage, and it's obviously an intimate sexual relationship... Uh, and you have a clean person who is part of the family of God and an unclean who is not, what does this do to the temple of God? And the Lord makes a special sanctioned exception in these cases. The believing spouse makes the family an object of God's devotion, of God's special attention. An unbeliever in a believing home, outside of being a believer, is in the most favored position of any human being. Because that family, because of the believer, is set apart for God's special attention and affection. That's why you don't divorce them. They're in a very enviable position that's why he says who knows that they might be saved they might come to know the lord because of your testimony and witness and so if they want to live with you you let them live with you well, what about the children what about the product of this clean unclean union now, it's not like god hasn't thought about it paul says no the children in this particular situation are considered holy. What does that mean? Does that mean saved? No, it can't mean saved. And the reason it doesn't is because it says in verse 16, how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? The fact that they are set apart and declared holy does not mean they are saved. It means they are under the special protection and affection of God set apart. But their salvation still has to come by their own faith in Jesus Christ. That's why I believe that all children in all believers' homes are already sanctified, set apart unto the Lord. Not saved, but in a special state of existence whereby they are in the protective custody of God's people and have every advantage to come to know the Lord. See? So you don't want to cast out the children, you don't want to cast out that spouse. They want to live with you. But if they choose not to live with you, they may leave, and you may allow them to leave. And God will not consider it a violation of His commands because He's commanding that you can let it happen. If, 
if unbelievers wish to honor the cleave and weave design, God wants to honor them. If they wish to break it, they are breaking it at their own peril and leaving the protective custody of God. The act of this marriage, rather than connecting the believer to sin, as one commentator puts it, brings the unbelievers into direct contact with God's grace, an atmosphere highly conducive to their salvation. Who knows what will happen? So here's the truth. If the unbeliever wishes to stay, stay married. If the unbeliever wishes to leave, the believer has God's permission to be unbound and let them go in peace. So in an adulterous generation like ours, the truth is this. The believer's role in marriage is to display the glorious nature of a covenant-keeping God. And staying married puts God's glory on display. We need to fight for our marriages and stay at it. We can and we must because we've been empowered to demonstrate the glory of God. We are now being called to the Lord's table. This is a table that reenacts the Lord's invitation to marry Him. And as God's people, given this great privilege this morning of being invited to the Lord's table to remind ourselves of our engagement to God, the Holy Spirit being our engagement ring, we are counting on God keeping His promise. And our marriages dishonor what we ourselves are holding God to if we dissolve them. If Christ ever divorces the church, you all have permission to get divorced. That's the truth of God's word. If Christ will not divorce the church, neither can you divorce your spouse. That's the truth. Let's stand for prayer. Our Father and our God, at the very inception of creation, you put this institution called marriage into place as the pinnacle of your creation event and established a permanent relationship between a man and a woman to call attention to the permanent relationship between God and His people. This is a solemn, solemn, sacred reality. And so, O oh God, as we 
find ourselves now participating and invited to the table of the Lord to honor a covenant-keeping God in salvation who is marrying us, I pray, O God, that we will not come to this table with malice in our hearts, with hatred toward our spouse in our hearts, with a plan to dissolve our marriage in our hearts, without repentance in our hearts, should we have dissolved already a marriage, O God. For you forgive those whose hearts are hard at one point in their life or were abandoned by someone whose heart was hard. O God, you have grace and mercy. But Lord, would we come to you this morning with a realization of the absolute truth that we populating this room of married people have an expectation that has been empowered by the living God. May we hold fast to our assignment and our calling to call attention to the truth of the gospel. For Jesus' sake, amen. In our closing prayer this morning, need to renew our vow of lifelong marriage to the spouse that God has given to us. And so um, I'm going to ask the men who are married in this room and your spouse is here to go to that spouse. If you're beside her, you're already there. You guys are not. And I'm going to ask you to invite your spouse to remain married to you for life. And the reason I'm asking the men to do this is because Jesus came to us. And men, we need to go to our wives and renew our commitment to a lifelong vow. And then I'm going to ask those couples to stand where you are if this is your commitment before Almighty God and we'll close in prayer. So let's do that. Soon. Will you? Our Father and our God, you have given us an assignment and a calling, and you have empowered us by the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives to fulfill that assignment and calling, to call attention to the glory of God by our marriages, to an unbelieving, unfaithful, disloyal world that they might see that there is a covenant-keeping God because He has a covenant-keeping people who make promises to one another and keep them. Not because it's easy, not because it's natural. It's the opposite. But because we can, because we have been called 
to represent the image of God by the power of the Holy Spirit in us. So Lord, we call attention to this solemn Sunday morning. No divorce, only marriage. Marriages that last a lifetime. That we might be a mission to our culture. We can't call out our culture until we first call out ourselves. So Lord, would you cause us to fulfill the promises we have made by the power of Jesus Christ in us? And I pray for those who are contemplating marriage. I pray for the young who are here. I pray for those who, who are in a broken situation. Lord, first of all, for those who are, who are young and going to be married, Lord, would you cause them to see this visual and understand the nature and the solemn promise they will make and that you will empower them to keep and then search for that spouse who is the assignment, the calling, the one they will live with for the rest of their lives. If they can't, then don't get married. For those who are in a broken situation or their hearts are aching today, oh God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your forgiveness, oh God. And I pray as we move forward from here that better things would be built. For I ask all of this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen and amen.